This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that Tom Richard and myself have been up to Tuesday the 15th of November from the stage of Abu Dhabi Finance Week. That includes looking at what's come out of Bali. Not the holiday destination, but the G20 Summit. We've been speaking to The Economist, Monica Malik to make sense of all of the headlines coming from the event. Speaking of coming, the football fans are on their way. We've been speaking to the boss of Dubai International Airport, Paul Griffiths, about how they're going to manage the thundering hordes, as well as his outlook for the rest of this year passenger-wise. When will they get back to pre-pandemic levels? Massive layoffs have been announced for Twitter, for Meta, and Amazon is rumoured to be next. We are looking at what it could mean for the thousands of jobs going at Twitter, at Meta, and Amazon is rumoured to be next. What does it mean for the tech talent pool in this part of the world? We've been speaking to the headhunter Oscar Oriella Haider. Plus, Abu Dhabi's big IPO fund is making waves. We've been speaking this morning to His Excellency Sama al Kabasi, the Director General of Economic Affairs at the Abu Dhabi Department of Economic Development. It's brilliant down here, really enjoying our time at Abu Dhabi Finance Week and a cracking lineup of speakers. Just looking at this morning who we've got. The founder of Baiju's is going to be here as well, Baiju Ravindran. That's the big uh, education company. Their brand is on the front of India's cricket shirts. Uh, he's speaking in about an hour's time, an hour and a half time. Uh, you've got the head of the UAE Banks Federation, His Excellency Abdulaziz al Guraer. He's the chairman of the UAE Banks Federation, of course, a senior figure within uh, Mashrek as well. He's talking about the changing landscape of banking in the UAE uh, at about 20 past 10 this morning. And I'm going to catch a few words with him afterwards. So we'll hear from Abdulaziz al Guraer tomorrow on the Business Breakfast. Another good one who's here is the founder of WeFox, Tom, a company that's raised $400 million through Mabadler. It's a, a German company. You're speaking to the founder. Yeah, Julian Ticker was going to be joining us in round about uh, 10 minutes' time or so. They are here. Obviously, relationship with this part of the world, uh, given uh, the funding that they have received from Mabadler uh, recently, the Abu Dhabi Wealth Fund Mabadler, uh, one of the largest contributors to their le- latest round. But that's just that's just cr- scratching the surface. I mean, this is a, a company that... Um, in its original format, set up in 2014, rebranded because of demand in 2015. Fantastic, very simplistic, uh, direct or indirect uh, business model uh, in the insure tech space. Uh, but doubling profit uh, every two years since 2014. Uh, as I said, uh, this is their uh, latest round of funding, Series D uh, at this stage. So they've continued to expand. I'm fascinated to find out a little bit more about uh, the insurtech fintech landscape here at the moment, how it compares to others uh, more globally and generally, and what they're looking to do uh, in terms of uh, their expansion plans, which they've uh, not been shy to talk about in the past. So nice to catch up with Julian. Basically, uh, we spoke to him a little earlier on this year when they announced that deal in July of this year, uh, but that was via a thing called Microsoft Teams. Uh, now, given the fact that he's in Abu Dhabi and we're in Abu Dhabi, we can do a face-to-facer, a face-off. He's going to be with us in a few minutes' time. Uh, what else can we talk about? We can talk about the G20, which, as we know, is happening in Bali. A Officially, few face-offs there, weren't there? <laughs> were indeed. Apparently, uh, the, the first official day is today. Uh, but yesterday, big talks between 
Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, presidents of the world's two biggest economies. This is what President Biden had to say afterwards. We had an open and candid conversation about our intentions and our priorities. It was clear that we'll defend American interests and values, promote universal human rights, and stand up for the international order and work in lockstep with our allies and partners. We're going to compete vigorously, but I'm not looking for conflict. I'm looking to manage this competition responsibly. And I want to make sure, make sure that every country abides by the international rules of the road. So what economic takeaways are we expecting, not just from Biden and Xi Jinping, but also from the UAE, because the UAE is there as a guest at the G20 summit in Bali. Uh, Here is Monica Malik, chief economist of ADCB. I think the focus is going to be very much on economic cooperation, supporting the global economy recover, but also as its role as a key energy producer and exporter. And that was one of the the key focuses of the statement that came out before, to make sure that the UAE will will support global energy sustainability, um, transition, but also security, where this remains a, a very critical time. We're still in the midst of an energy crisis. And increasingly, we're seeing UAE playing a, a larger and larger role overseas. Um, last week, when, when um, the UAE was at COP, there was a large announcement of investments in Egypt for wind farms. So I believe this is going to be a key area of focus. But is inflation still going to be the big story at the events? UBS, the Swiss Investment Bank, says we may be entering an era of disinflation and the worst is over in terms of inflation. Do you agree, Monica? Well, the the, the latest data, especially from the US, has been positive. And we are seeing signs that makes us believe that we are going to start moving into disinflation. Um, Supply chain constraints are easing. Energy prices have come down from the peaks that we saw, especially after the, the, the war in Ukraine just started. However, it's still a very challenging situation, especially on the energy front, and especially in places such as Europe, where going into the winter, reserves and inventories have been built up. But after these draw down over the winter, Europe will have to build these up again. And this is at a time when there's very limited supply going to come in from Russia, from gas. Global supply remains very tight, and especially if you start seeing China coming out of lockdowns next year. So I think on the energy side, we still see a lot of uncertainties and a fundamental need to increase global supply going forward and clean supply as well. Finally, we asked Monica about the Abu Dhabi economy. Now, we're based in Dubai, so we know that Dubai is booming. We can feel it. Uh, But what about the nation's capital? Well, we've also seen very strong recovery here, and and it's both on the oil and the non-oil side. Of course, much of the growth that UAE is going to see, we're, we're expecting growth of 6.5% this year overall headline. A big share of that is going to be um, coming from the oil sector, which is, of course, uh, Abu Dhabi-based. So, of course, we're also going to see the benefits of, of stronger revenue into the government coffers and um, So it's a very strong fundamental backdrop. But on the non-oil side, we've also seen the recovery in areas such as tourism, 
hospitality. Uh, we have the event this week, the financial conference, but two weeks ago we had Adipac and the, the hotel occupancy was almost at a 100%, certainly over 90%. Tourists are also seeing strong growth. But we're also seeing a pickup in investment as well. There is the, the investment on the energy side. Um, we're seeing a front-loading of plans to increase oil production. Um, and that, that, that was announced earlier. But you're also seeing investment in the, the non-oil side areas such as the museum projects in Sadiat, um, residential real estate as well, benefiting from the visa reforms. So very broad-based recovery and growth story as well in, in Abu Dhabi. Monica Malik, she is the chief economist of ADCB, one of the biggest banks here in Abu Dhabi. Now, it's earnings season. It's just coming to the end of earnings season, 15th of November. That means firms have had the 45 days that they're allowed from the end of the quarter to publish their financial results. And many of them do leave it to the last minute. One of them this morning is Amanat. That's the healthcare and education company. And it's a, a decent but not spectacular set of numbers from them. Amanat reporting 6% growth in what they call adjusted net profit uh, for the nine months. That is, yeah, we're seeing a lot a lot of numbers a lot bigger than 6%, aren't we, this quarter? <laughs> Just very, very creditable performance from them, um, but overshadowed by some of the stellar earnings that we have seen. Yeah, this morning one of the companies making headlines for us um, is EMA Development, its highest ever property sales for the first nine months of this year, up 11% on the year before. Uh, others coming in, I'm just looking at the Dubai Financial Market website. We've got a press release from TCOM within the past 10 minutes or so. I'm opening it up. Is it the results? Uh, no, it's interim Please cash report dividend. to human resources as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> a 200 million dirham interim cash dividend yes. approved in the TCOM Group General Assembly meeting. So just a, an update from them there. This is the Business Breakfast Live from Abu Dhabi finance week if you are down here come and say hello lots of people have you don't have to bring us a cup of coffee although uh, oscar one of our guests got me a nice cold lemonade about an hour ago and that sir was very much appreciated mm. this is the bite-sized business breakfast exclusively on dubai i1038.com paul's joining us now paul griffiths is the ceo of dubai airports and i know brandy you were keen to speak to paul about the influx that we're going to have in the next what, 72 hours of football fans from around the world, Brandy. Here we are indeed. So, the fans are coming. What does it mean for Dubai airports? Uh, speaking to Paul Griffiths, uh, the DXB CEO. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Brandy. When exactly will the thundering hordes start <coughs> descending? Or are they already on their way? Well, I think they're probably on their way, judging by the roads and the busyness of the airport at the moment. Uh, obviously, things kick off in earnest on November the 20th with four matches a day. We've got up to 120 extra flights planned from DWC to Doha for the entire World Cup period. So it's going to be very busy indeed. And I think everyone has chosen to combine attendance of the World Cup with coming and having a holiday in Dubai as the weather's turning out so beautifully at the moment. So what kind of numbers do you think the, uh, the World Cup will bring? How many extra passengers? Quite difficult to say because, of course, you know, when people come to Dubai, they're not saying at the beginning whether they're actually here to go to the World Cup. But we, we reckon that the town is actually going to continue to be incredibly busy. And with 
you know, sort of average of about 96 departures and arrivals, each with probably about 150 passengers on board. It's going to be very, very busy at DWC, and we're taking extra care to make sure every single one of those departures and arrivals is as smooth and as on time as possible. So how do you do that? How do you prepare for something like this? Well, it's a massive team effort, really. We've linked arms with the police, with customs, with immigration, with all of our customer service frontline teams. We've got all the check-in desks ready. Um, Obviously, going to the matches, not many people are going to have hold baggage. So it's all about speeding people through the terminal. And as that terminal at DWC is actually designed to cope with millions of passengers every year, We've got actually plenty of capacity and processing capability at the airport to make the whole experience very, very smooth. I think what we're going to be doing is encouraging people to take public transport. There's going to be buses laid on. Uh, the metro, of course, to Ibn Batuta will then have a bus link going directly to the airport. There's going to be free car parking at DWC for the period of the World Cup. People will then be able to take the short walk across to the terminal and it's a very, very quick and easy passage, hopefully, through the airport, uh, onto the plane, off to the match and then vice versa in the return direction. Given the emotional nature of football, are you making any special plans, any special training for your staff to deal with those who are in high spirits, might be a bit tired and emotional? (laughs) Tired and emotional. I think we're all going to be a bit tired, emotional by the end of the uh, actual series. But I think what we're doing is just making sure there's enough people on hand to make sure that everyone behaves themselves and has a great time and actually passes through the airport in both directions very smoothly and effortlessly. That's the idea. This is happening at a time of very full planes, Paul. Um, and high flight prices as well around the world. What's your sense um, about what that means for demand for travel going forward? Are we headed to some sort of demand destruction or not? Well, I think the thing is you've got to look at the reasons why airfares are so high, and I don't think a day goes by without me being quizzed on why the cost of flying is so expensive at the moment. But I think there's three things here. The first thing, of course, is there was a massive disruption to the supply chain of aviation. I mean, in May uh, 2020, we had the same number of passengers in the entire month that we had in May 2019 in just four hours. So you can see how much the aviation industry was affected during COVID-19. A lot of airlines took a lot of time an effort to really take costs out of their business. They retired a lot of aircraft and laid off a lot of pilots and cabin crew. And of course, trying to put them back in the air now has meant a a bit of a lead time and a supply shortage of capacity. Then, of course, you lock down 3.9 billion people the world over for an extended period of time and you create a massive suppressed demand for air travel, result being shortage of supply Um, excess of demand, and guess what? The price goes up. These things will equalise over time, and hopefully uh, cost-effective flying will return at some stage in the near future. I think flying is something that we all love, and we've all had the privilege of doing for so long now. It's in our DNA, and I think, uh, hopefully, demand for travel will continue to stabilise and increase as we go forward. 
Right. So were you saying in the near future, do you see them going back down then? We're not looking at a new normal for flight prices. Well, I think obviously at the moment, with the weather being so great here in Dubai and the government having done a great job through COVID-19, everyone wants to be here. Last month, we had something like 105% of the pre-COVID numbers visiting Dubai. And in December last year, it was 111%. So the city has never been more popular. So as that continues forward, once the capacity comes back into the market, um, hopefully we'll see a little bit of stabilisation and a bit more availability, which will mean that prices perhaps are a bit more affordable going forward. Well, let's look at what all of this means for your numbers. Where are you sitting at the moment and what does it look like the second half of this year will, will come in at? Well, we've just had to revise our forecast up by um, another million. Um, I hope I'll be speaking to you next week about our Q3 numbers, which um, I won't reveal at the moment. They're looking pretty good, I have to say. Um, things I think we'll get back to very close to normality within the next few months. Certainly, we've seen massive accelerated growth and demand for Dubai, and we've been able to respond to that. Our teams have done a magnificent job to get us back to normal. So uh, more about that next week when we speak. 30 seconds, though, Paul. Are you suggesting that we could be at pre-pandemic levels or near to them by the beginning of next year? I wouldn't say by the beginning, but the monthly figures that we're seeing now we're getting very, very close to what we saw pre-pandemic. And certainly with the business in great shape, I think there's great room for optimism that this sector and our communications with the world will be very, very strong. And I'm very optimistic and bullish about the future of aviation uh, here in the UAE. It's a great story. Paul Griffiths is the boss of Dubai Airport, CEO of Dubai Airport, speaking to us there about what a little football match or two could mean for traffic through Dubai International. You're listening to the Business Breakfast live from Abu Dhabi Finance Week. Coming up in the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about the big tech layoffs that are happening globally. They're also happening here. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. And let's dig into one of those top stories in a little bit more detail. The rumours this morning that Amazon could be the latest tech companies to rake layoffs. This follows, of course, 11,000 globally at Meta, including employees in this region, and around 3,700 thought to have been let go at Twitter. I'm very pleased to be joined in the studio by, well... Not the studios, you can hear from the traffic noise around us, by Oscar Arena Haider. Now, he is the head of financial services at the headhunting firm Robert Walters Middle East. He knows a thing or two about placing candidates. Oscar, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's look at these numbers. Twitter, uh, we've got Meta. Potentially, we have Amazon as well. Do you see this as individual issues for different companies? Or is this the potential start of a, a wider tech employment route? I think if we start off by saying that all of those companies are huge conglomerates, they have started off growing their business over many, many years, some of them decades, and now they've reached a huge number of people. Let's be honest, they've potentially overhired historically. Um, so they, are, they have the critical mass and they have the ability to what they call, and it's a horrible terminology, but cost cut and, and save on their immediate, when you look at a balance sheet, investors immediately look at, at the heavy costs. And sadly, that is the human capital cost. So 
that is the first point to mention that these are huge companies and they can afford to still operate and and profitable and 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 return dividends and 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 investments to the shareholders without a, a percentage of their people i think mean, is it a wider problem um i i in in my humble opinion as a financial services recruiter i i don't think it necessarily is and i'll tell you why because we have seen so many cycles over the last decades that all of these cycles all of these downturns comes opportunity so if you look at a lot of the new technology new technology companies deliveroo etc etc a lot of these companies spawned from a crisis period um so in my opinion what we're going to see these are incredibly intelligent people as well remember thousands of people from x uh corporates x massive conglomerates they will start to form their own their own businesses and they're intelligent people they're going to come together humans by their very nature can be very resilient and they're going to they're going to um form businesses by their own and potentially you know potentially take market share of their previous employers which which we find is is fascinating. Now the reason we've got you in here as as you just pointed out someone who predominantly places people in the financial services sector um is because we're at Abu Dhabi Finance mm. Week and there's been a massive focus on fintech here so far. A lot of talk about it yesterday day 1 of the event. Could tech's loss be fintech's game on the talent front? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And if you don't mind strap back so my business Robert Walters we opened an office 3 years ago in the WeWorks the Hub 71 so WeWorks think San Francisco think pool tables think ping pong table it's quite remarkable it's upstairs and it's an amazing over three floors it's an amazing ecosystem of young talented ex googlers or ex whatever you want to call them you know any corporates google's the first one that comes to mind and these individuals are growing and they're scaling and they're also attracting serious investment from the sovereign funds around us in Abu Dhabi for their new startups so to answer your question i genuinely believe and we see this a lot they're a young community so they reach out on linkedin they reach out on facebook say hey we are a bnpl we are a buy now pay later platform in the hub 71 we're open to conversations from any ex meta guys come come on over so it's it's a very it's a very collaborative ecosystem that that is forming uh, in that fintech world so to answer your question yeah i think you're right yeah i mean this is something we saw yesterday the regional meta boss posted on linkedin look you know we've had to let these people mm. go um has anyone got jobs going mm. my last count more than 2 dozen people said yes we do mm. how hard is it for you at the moment to find the fintech talent you need um yeah so so fintech and and this is different layers right fintech is is the granddaddy of the the tech now we have looking over there we have regtech we have insuretech we have every every tech has now become the overarching umbrella and we have the t model we have loads of different verticals underneath tech i think fintech was the first and i and i feel that fintech will still remain definitely as the primary sector um it it's 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 getting easier and easier and i tell i'm not not saying it's easy but there are more people um who are readily available who have been let go who are open to conversations and in this part of the world have to be a bit more flexible on on what they go into what's the effect is that having on wages yeah i, I was thinking that all, all of this week um 
I, I think we will see an easing. I think over the last couple of years, a post post COVID again, when's COVID is definitely over now, but a post COVID sort of boom and, and wages have gone gone up in the last maybe two years. I think we will slowly start to see. Uh, not a correction, but a, a plateauing. Um, however, different reward schemes that have been put in place over COVID will maintain. So I'm talking about different LTIPs, different long-term incentive plans, different end-of-service plans. Um, so many add-ons, the plus-plus, will have to remain because employees have got used to that so that everything around the fixed number will contribute potentially and sometimes more so than the actual basic. Can you give us some percentage figures on that? How are you seeing the the basic to benefits model change in your sector? Yeah, I mean, it re- it really depends on subsector. So my my sweet spot, financial services, is funds and sovereign funds. We're around ADGM. We're we're blessed and very fortunate to have some of the three largest funds in the world. You know, Mubadla and, and and the sort. So um, their their total comp is what they work for. You know, the bonuses now. Uh, over the last 12 months, the cycle, we're just going to see another cycle. But these guys are potentially getting up to 16, sometimes 19 months bonus um, of the very the high performing parts of the funds that are returning the best percentages. But in terms of coming back to fintech, I think I think it's going to and we've spoken about this before. It's going to be the ones that are most flexible with with the home situation that are giving the, the best package in terms of social um, rewards, so the ones that are giving memberships to this, or, or an advantage to study potentially, sort of, you know, whatever it may be, adult studies as well, uh, alongside work. The, the, the companies that are most flexible are going to attract and retain. Retention is massive. Retain the best people on the market. I've got one minute left with you. The other big story at the moment, of course, is the FTX bankruptcy filing. Mm. Will it make it harder to bring people? into the crypto side of, of fintech? Will it make it less attractive? I don't know. Talking to a lot of the guys last night, we had a, an opening um, gala at the Emirates Palace with the, the, the chairman, um, His Excellency Al-Zabi. I, I genuinely think the buzz is still there. I think it's incredibly exciting. The returns are phenomenal. And I genuinely think that, yes, okay, this is a blip. And yes, of course, it's a winter. But I genuinely think that there are so many. Talk to, to Basel at Midchains, a local crypto exchange, an MRC. The excitement's still there and it's still very much a sector that's that's going through. Oscar Riano Haider, Head of Financial Services at the headhunting firm Robert Walters Middle East, speaking to us this morning uh, on the back of layoffs from a number of tech firms about what it means for hiring in the sector. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We're here live at Abu Dhabi Finance Week where there has been a huge focus on the IPO sector over the last 24 hours. Developments include the activation of an IPO fund to help get more private companies in the market. Very pleased to be joined now here live on location by His Excellency Sama al Kubasi. He's the Director General of Economic Affairs at the Abu Dhabi Department of Economic Development and he's here to tell us all about the fund Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Brandy. Happy to have you here. So you've been quietly working away on this fund. Tell us what it's going to do. Absolutely. Uh, as you know, the fund has been announced earlier this year by His Highness Sheikh Khalid uh, uh, bin Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan. 
Uh, the fund, obviously, the parameters were given at the time, which is a 5 billion dirham fund. The focus will be an investment uh, in uh, sectors across as long as they are listed in Abu Dhabi Stock Exchange. And the fund will be looking at a holding period up to three years from 10% uh, to 40% of the float of the IPO. Now, the past year, we've been really focused on the design principles of how to construct the fund and to be relevant. And the relevancy is very important. With a changing economy, we spoke about the bear market yesterday, the bullish market, and how do you really remain relevant in a fund? It's not only from an investment point of view. In a bear market, we're a developmental fund end of the way. So end of the day, we want to make sure that who, whoever benefits is, is the end user, the investors. We don't want to crowd the market by creating another fund, a government fund, because we already have the sovereign wealth funds to do that. So the idea was in a bull market, the fund will play more of a guiding governance transformation to get companies IPO ready. We will support them throughout the IPO. And if the issue is highly oversubscribed, we pull back. We're not a cornerstone investor. Relatively, in a bear market, we are more focused on supporting those companies to keep on the sustainability of rolling out. Let's start with the very fundamentals of why you're doing this. How is this going to help the private sector list? Well, the fundamentals are, one, we are an ecosystem enabler. We have a fantastic ecosystem in Abu Dhabi, ADX playing a, a fantastic role. We have different vehicles across Abu Dhabi with Abu Dhabi Investment Office to attract FDI. We have Khalifa Fund, we have Abu Dhabi Resident Office to attract talent and acquisition of talent. So uh, we have the regulators from the federal side. So it's just to bring this ecosystem together, but also to give the issuer and the investor the right advice. We are an independent party. We will work closely with the investment banks hand in hand with the legal firms and the regulators to pave the way for new regulatory reforms and, re and policies. What is the biggest hurdle, if you want? What's the biggest challenge in getting more private companies onto the ADX? I think the, the major challenge for us was to decipher how do you really deal with every company? Because every company is different, every sector is different. You cannot compare a gross company to a family office. So idea, how do you get this right and how do you diagnose this right? Right? We don't want to also enter into companies. It's like going to, uh, uh, if you're an athlete and you want to go to a marathon and you want to upgrade to that, right? We want to make sure to understand, diagnose you. Are you ready to go and run that marathon? Do we have the right regime, the right diet? And that's exactly what we do. We work closely with those companies to diagnose them, understand them. Do they have a valuable growth story, equity story? Are they financially sound? Do they have the right management? Do they have international institutional investors or they don't? Non-executive versus executive board members. Uh, management, uh, operating model, we look at all those factors and from there we decide the transformation plan and that transformation plan will be rewarded if they complete it to become IP already from the government. Well you've been talking to companies to see if they are at that stage. Uh, tell us about the companies that you have identified as potentials for this fund. I cannot also, because uh, the advisory side, they're a private side, so I cannot release their names uh, under obligation with an NDA. But uh, uh, what I could share with you are a lot of those companies are gross companies. Some of them are family. Uh, few of them are actually family uh, and big name families that are considering uh, doing that. Obviously, it's a journey, especially when it comes to the family. It's a big topic in the region here. How do you transform family companies to become uh, institutionalized and I think it was an educational care for us as government and the family to understand that one they're not going to lose control yeah. it's better for the generations to come it's better also for scalability of their operation uh, by raising new funds not the traditional way of raising funds through the debt market 
So I think uh, there is uh, light at the end of the tunnel, and if we crack those families, I think more to follow. What kind of timeline do you think we could be looking at to actually see some of these companies get to the listing stage? So we, they're all different. Uh, so we have six what we call advisory, which being technically diagnosed. So those are basically pre-athletes, as we spoke about. They're still in the, in the diagnosis that are there to become athletes. They're training. Uh, they're training. And uh, we have uh, 30 companies that we've been identified. Those are your pro athletes. They're ready. They're ready to go. But obviously, uh, some of them are dual listing. Some of them are cross-border. Some of them, like companies are from abroad that require certain disclosures and, and support on the ground. Uh, so we, we anticipate there is going to be a big flow of those companies coming uh, early Q1, Q2, and Q3. Uh, a good number of them will be already up and running. I understand that you can't name the companies, but can you give us some hints as to the sectors? So, a couple of them are in technology. Uh, Some of them are multi, from the family office, are are uh, multi-conglomerates, looking at contracting, uh, downstream oil, chemicals, and and also cars. And what will this mean for the retail investors, which is where we're seeing some of the, the biggest new interest coming into the listings we've seen so far this year? So, uh, retail investor, I mean, I mean, we saw Abu Dhabi or the UAE market transformation from a herd investors to a more sophisticated investor. And one of the fund main goal is to further educate the investors and also to bring uh, a more diverse uh, listings. Uh, we as DED, Department of Economic Development, work closely with the regulators to establish the SPAC regulations. We're working very closely to establish uh, also the new asset classes. Uh, most of the transactions are coming to us, although we govern and we make sure that they are uh, sound govern- governance, uh, legal structure and everything. It's very important to us as well to educate the investors what type of risks they're taking, uh, what ca- the sector's, uh, the sector's uh, anticipation. So, for example, technology companies, we all know they're in a growth stage, so they burn cash, right? So you want to make sure that the retail comes and say, okay, this company is losing money. The reality is no, this company is in a growth stage. Mm-hmm. So that education curve takes time and, and we need to diversify uh, the investor base, not only about subscribing and, and, and selling, it's about staying and looking at the long term as well. Okay, we've got one minute left with you. That $5 billion, just to bring us right back to the beginning, that's going to buy in between, as you said, 10 to 40% of some of these companies. What kind of of rate could we see that start to be invested at? So today we're in a bullish market. Uh, Most of the issues that we saw recently between Abu Dhabi and Dubai and even Saudi are highly oversubscribed, including Americana already announcements. So uh, the reality is in a bullish market like this, the fund will not, from an investment point of view, does not need to, to do much. We will be there to support and wherever we're needed from a developmental agenda. So if a company in a special sector, especially technology, that does not have the the retail presence that we anticipate, then the fund will come and play a bigger role. Uh, But the fund will be focusing on the more important stuff, making sure that we have a sustainable, strong pipeline that is supportive throughout the way to complement that growth and and the the, the demand and also the, the confidence of the international investors. Thanks very much for speaking to us today. His Excellency Sama Al-Kubaisi, Director General for Economic Affairs at the Abu Dhabi Department of Economic Development. We appreciate your time. Thank you. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.